0: So it might be stating the completely obvious, but at this point in the retreat, perhaps even more than previously, we're all at different stages of our practice. And to some extent, our paths are diverging now. Half of us are coming to the end of our retreat, half are now halfway through. So I was trying to find a theme or a topic that might be relevant to all of us no matter where we currently are in terms of this retreat or in terms of our broader Dharma practice development and the topic I've chosen to explore tonight is right effort or wise effort because no matter what's going on in our practice right now, right effort is always necessary Right effort's always necessary, and it's also one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path that I think is often misunderstood. So just before we go any further into the topic, I thought to take a moment just to pause and notice when you hear this phrase, right effort, if there are any particular responses in the body, the heart, the mind. Just a moment of silence now to notice. So quite often, there's a common response even just to the idea of right effort. And it sounds something like, oh no, here we go, I knew it. The teachers don't think we're trying hard enough. Now they're going to tell us again about how on retreats in Asia they only get four hours of sleep a night. (laughs) I feel exhausted even thinking about that. In fact, I think I'll go to bed as soon as this talk's finished. (laughs) A second common response is like, finally we get to the real practice. Enough of all this fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. Now it's really time to crank it up. No more naps for me. I'm going to get three hours of sleep tonight. And then for other people, there might not be much response at all. So if that's you, you can just abide in equanimity for the rest of this talk. So whatever your response or non-response might be, I invite you just to kind of bookmark it to come back to later as possibly useful information. Because for many people, just the word effort can bring up all kinds of views and self-views. And if we aren't aware of them, those views tend to drive our practice in ways that may not be so helpful. Sometimes pushing us into unconscious habits of either too much effort or not enough. And at least in my own practice, I take reassurance that this was true even for the Buddha himself before he became fully enlightened he really struggled for years to find the right balance in relation to effort. So I think pretty much all of you are familiar with the story of his life, how he started life as a prince and was able to pretty much indulge in all of the sense pleasures available to him at that time. And then about the age of 29, he recognized that this wasn't a very meaningful way to live his life, So he left the palace, according to the story, went through a kind of existential crisis, renounced the life of luxury for one of pretty hardcore asceticism. And he spent seven years wandering around India studying with all the most renowned spiritual teachers of the day, doing the practices they recommended, which were mostly more or less different ways of torturing the body with the intention of getting rid of sense desire. And the Buddha-to-be was a good student, so he did these practices, these austerities, basically until the point of death. Unfortunately for us and for him, he realized that they weren't working, and at that point he had a breakthrough. He decided to take a little food to recover his strength, and he, as he was reflecting on where his practice had gone off balance in some way, he remembered a memory he'd had as a child, an experience he'd had as a child when he was six or seven. Supposedly, he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, and he remembered being a young boy and slipping into some deep concentration. And the profound peace of mind was very pleasant. And he realized that this pleasantness had been the missing piece in his quest. This mental, refined mental state was the missing piece. And it said that not longer after this memory, he um, became the Buddha. He attained full realization. He woke up and achieved complete freedom of heart and mind. So it's significant then that the first discourse he gave after his enlightenment was a teaching on what he calls the middle way, finding the balance between extremes of self-indulgence on one hand and self-torture on the other. And I think most of us can understand self-indulgence, the tendency to make too little effort, but when we hear about physical self-torture, that might seem bizarre to us because it's not so much part of our culture today. But what is very common is what Joseph Goldstein refers to as psychological self-torture, where so many of us are, are our own worst enemies, constantly judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves. So even though we might know intellectually that all of the Buddha's teachings are framed around balance, this middle way between self-indulgence and self-torment, it can be surprisingly difficult to find that balance in relation to effort. And again, perhaps because our dominant culture is one of perfectionism and competitiveness, striving, busyness, idealism, when we hear the phrase right effort, it can easily trigger a sense of self-judgment, not good enough. At least that was true for me early on in my own practice. Whenever I heard this phrase, right effort, I'd immediately think blood, sweat, and tears. And I completely missed the right part, fixating on the effort part with grim determination. And I don't think that's unique to me. There's some way that we do seem to be very binary creatures, and we tend to approach everything we do in this very binary way of all or nothing. Then we get caught in ideas of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. So the first step in working with right effort is to be able to recognize our own default tendencies because most of us do tend to default more to one end of the scale than the other, either pushing too hard or taking it just a little bit too easy. So to begin with, I'm going to say a little bit about how each of these default imbalances can show up in practice and ways that we can bring them back into balance. But there's a challenge here because some of what I say tonight is going to be more relevant for the people who tend to be too tight and some is only going to apply to the people who tend to be too loose so whenever I give this talk, I wonder how can I get the relevant bits to be heard by the relevant people, <laughs> because I know from my own experience that we tend to listen to talks very selectively, and we tend to hear only the bits we want to hear, which tend to be the ones that reinforce our existing conditioning. So in relation to effort, the two tight people hear the instructions for the two loose people and decide they need to work much harder. And the two loose people hear the instructions with the two tight people and are happy that they can slack off even more. (laughs) So part of right effort is seeing, making the effort to try to not do that and see if you can take in those instructions that will help you find more balance. Okay, so first the common tendency of making too much effort often shows up, especially early on in the retreat, if you can remember back there, that that tendency towards intense striving, trying extra hard in every sitting, forcing ourselves to focus continually on the breath and dragging our attention back over and over and over. Likewise in the walking, trying extra hard, fixating on every single step, Pushing ourselves to get up super early every morning, stay up late every evening. But the tension that that produces, if it's not done skillfully, makes all of that effort unsustainable. And so before too long, we usually collapse into a phase of exhausted apathy. And we're more or less forced to take a period of recovery. And then the whole cycle starts all over again. We push too hard, we collapse, we recover a bit, we push too hard, we collapse. And we swing back and forth between striving and apathy, striving and apathy, striving and apathy. And this imbalance is so common that I think of it as what I call the superhero to slug syndrome. So we force ourselves into superhero mode out of an unconscious fear that unless we're giving 110% effort all day long, we're going to stall completely and become that loathsome slug that we used to be, which ironically is often what happens because we exhaust ourselves in the effort to be superhuman and then we burn out and fall back into slug mode. So if perhaps you recognize a tinge of this pattern in yourself, it's really important not to take it personally. Many of us have spent decades steeped in values of busyness and achievement and perfectionism. So it's not surprising we would bring these same values, this goal-oriented attitude, to our practice. So we bring this goal-oriented attitude, and then the flip side of expectation is disappointment, self-judgment, and doubt. Energy can get consumed by anxiety, wondering if we're doing it right. We get caught in comparing mind, even though we have no clue what's going on actually in other people's minds. So this over-efforting often results in feelings of inadequacy and self-hatred, and unworthiness, and then there's more trying too hard and more judging and so on. So we want to take a lot of care to recognize when we're forcing the practice in some way on the big picture and moment to moment. So for example, at the end of a sitting, when the bell rings, notice what happens. If there's a tidal wave of relief, that might be a sign that they may have been making too much effort. Because in reality, the moment before the bell rings and the moment after the bell rings are equal opportunities to be mindful. And maintaining a more relaxed continuity of awareness is much more sustainable energy-wise than a kind of stop-start practice. So, again, mindfulness is really the first step to help us come out of this cycle of over and under efforting. Mindfulness of what's happening in our bodies, tightening, tension, and so on, what's happening in the mind, resistance, irritation, frustration, judgment. And then, again, that important question how are we relating to this experience? What's the attitude in the mind about what's happening? So we're training to recognize when there's some background sense of wanting or expectation or perhaps not wanting or resistance. And then we can bring in the investigation factor and to see if there is some kind of identification or conditioning that's underneath the over-efforting. We might ask ourselves, What do I think would happen if I didn't make so much effort? Or who would I be if I didn't make so much effort? And then just listen for the intuitive answer. And sometimes we can touch into a deep-rooted fear of some kind. And if so, can we hold that with compassion rather than taking it personally? So, in some ways, this practice of finding balance is a practice of listening. And in the Buddha's own teachings, there's a well-known metaphor for this. There's a discourse that describes how one of the Buddha's students had been a musician, a lute player, before he became a monk. And when this man, Sona, became a monk, he was trying really far too hard and wasn't making any progress. So, eventually, he went to the Buddha for advice. And the Buddha asked him, when you played the lute, if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings very tight? And obviously the answer is no. And then he asked a second question. If you want a good sound, do you tune the strings too loose? Again, obvious. We need to tune the strings just right to find that midpoint between too tight and too loose. And I appreciate that metaphor because it's about listening. And in the same way, we need to train ourselves to listen to our own bodies and hearts and minds to recognize what for us is too tight or too loose. So we're listening to our inner experience and our outer experience to know what's appropriate, balanced effort for us But then even after we've found that midpoint, we have to keep checking because just like with the lute, we don't tune an instrument once and then that's it. We have to keep retuning it. Just like our practice, conditions are constantly changing. So what's right effort now in this sitting will be different in the next one. It'll be different in the walking, different next week or next month, different when we're sick or injured. And some of you here on retreat are working with physical issues and health challenges, visible or invisible. So you need to take extra care to find a balanced approach for you. But whether we have health challenges or not, all of us need to be tuning in to the overall energy of our bodies and hearts and minds so that we can keep adjusting the amount of effort that's needed. Just like driving a car, it's not skillful to be trying to go 90 miles an hour, pedal to the metal all the time. Obviously, we need to drive to the conditions so that we don't injure ourselves or others. So finding balance is this process of listening moment to moment, and also recognizing the bigger patterns of how we tend to get off balance. So, so far I've mostly been talking about the imbalance of too much effort, but there are also times when the pendulum swings the other way and we slide into complacency. And for some of us, lack of effort might be more the default. And sometimes this comes up as a kind of backlash from having made too much effort. We hear about the need for effort, for discipline, and something in us consciously or unconsciously rebels, and we retreat back into our comfort zones And on one level, this is natural. Of course we love comfort. And I think given the choice, many of us would quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. So one Tibetan teacher famously complained about this with his students. He described how he was constantly telling them to wake up, but he said they were like marsupials and they just kept trying to wriggle back down into the pouch. (laughs) So you can get that sense of A part of us would just like to be a marsupial and get back in the pouch and stay there. And perhaps some of you are wondering, well, what's the problem with that? Mm -hmm. Well, one is it's not possible to stay in our comfort zones. And two, even if it were, the downside is that over time, our comfort zones can get smaller and smaller. And we can see this even on retreat, where our options for getting cozier, somewhat limited. Have you noticed, okay, I'll speak for myself, how quickly we develop strategies for staying comfortable? So we reserve our favorite seat in the dining room, even though we're supposed to be cultivating non-attachment and accepting conditions as we find them. And we find our favorite place to walk and our favorite clothes to wear, and we set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to snack. And if our routine gets thrown off in some way, we can get surprisingly upset. So we all have our strategies for maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And sometimes I've noticed as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, in some setting, it's... It, Meditation is conflated with just making ourselves more comfortable. So the term self-care is popping up more and more in association with wellness centers and day spas and health, health retreats. But what's often being promoted as self-care is more a marketing strategy and it's not so much about genuine well-being as about self-indulgence. And the problem with self-indulgence is it can be a slippery slope. So I have to confess there have been times on retreat for myself when I've tried this trick of rationalizing self-indulgence as self-care. So I might follow the schedule for a while, and then usually after a period of trying too hard, I've told myself, oh, I just need to ease up a bit. And maybe at some point that was true, but it can quickly become an unconscious habit of just taking it a bit too easy. So again, in my own experience, the sitting, walking, sitting, walking becomes sit one, nap one, sit half of one, nap two, walk a little bit, lie down a bit, take a cup of tea, a bit more lying down meditation because that's good self-care and the Buddha taught lying down. (laughs) which is true, (laughs) cannot argue with that. And for some people, this is a very necessary posture. But for me at that time, lying down meditation was more about napping, which drifted into long periods of sleep, and then it gave way to boredom and restlessness and guilt and anxiety and so on. So still, with the caveat about always listening to ourselves and finding for ourselves what is appropriate effort in each moment, I'd like to talk a little bit about the benefits of challenging ourselves. So if you do notice that your practice has slid into complacency, it could be an opportunity to reconnect with your deepest aspirations to get a sense of why you came on this retreat and what your overall orientation, aspiration is. And then just to ask, is what I'm doing now really in the service of that aspiration? Am I moving in the direction of the true freedom that the Buddha is offering? And again, this freedom is not about getting comfortable by constantly manipulating our external conditions. It comes from training our inner capacity to let go and let be. Because when we can do this, we're not so dependent on conditions out there being a certain way in order for us to be happy. But if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, then when we do run into life's inevitable challenges, we won't have the inner resources to meet it. And it's true that here and now in this setting we can ask for an extra pillow or take a hot shower or have a cup of tea or eat a piece of chocolate or take a painkiller or secretly play with our phones or do pretty much whatever we want to to alleviate the discomfort. But at some point all of us are going to be in situations where our usual strategies are either not available or don't work anymore. And eventually, all of us are going to have to face into our own aging and illness and dying if we aren't already. So, to use an analogy, it's a bit like lifting weights. I'm not a weightlifter, but we start with five or ten kilo, ten pound weights, and then we gradually build up our strength rather than waiting until we suddenly have to lift fifty or a hundred pounds or kilos. And this gradually extending what we think of as possible for ourselves is what builds confidence. And unless we at least try, we never find out what we're actually capable of. So here we have a valuable opportunity to train in stretching our comfort zones. And again, to do this with kindness and humor rather than judgment recognizing that it's human nature to take the easy option if we have a choice. So let this be a creative exploration of ways we can lessen our attachment to comfort instead of strengthening it. And when we are able to do this, we often experience a deep sense of contentment that is much more satisfying than any of our usual creature comforts are. On the physical level, we can gently expand our comfort zones by choosing not to indulge every passing sense desire. And on the mental level, too, we can explore some of the ways we tend to stay within our mental comfort zones, clinging to our views and opinions, perceptions, judgments, beliefs, identities, and so on. So as a way of challenging some of those views and opinions, I'd like to take some time now to explore more specifically how the Buddha defined right effort in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. Because although in English this phrase, right effort, might have connotations of a forceful, willpower-driven straining to achieve something, the actual definition of right effort in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path is much more nuanced. So rather than being a binary, right effort and wrong effort, it has four parts to it. The first two parts are to do with releasing unskillful mind states, and the last parts are to do with cultivating skillful mind states. And that shift from unskillful to skillful mind states is one that we can see on the micro and the macro level of our practice, if we look carefully enough. So when the Buddha is asked to define what he meant by right effort, he's reported to have said, a person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind, and strives to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. That's so it's a fairly complex way of saying we make the effort to prevent unwholesome states from coming up in the first place. So that's the first of these four great efforts. And from the way the Buddha phrases this, it does take effort. Perhaps as a way of acknowledging that it's not easy, this language here is quite emphatic. It says make an effort, stir up energy, exert ourselves, and it does say strive. But haven't I just been saying that striving is a problem? So yes, there's a distinction here. There's will-driven, forceful, over-efforting, and striving is the problem. But it is possible to strive skillfully, to make effort in a more balanced way, So for some of you that might sound like a total paradox. So just briefly, one way of telling the difference between skillful effort and forceful striving is to notice the amount of self-referencing thoughts in the mind. So if the effort that we're making is accompanied by a lot of thoughts about me and my practice and how well or badly I'm doing, whether I'm looking good or bad, what other meditators are thinking about me, whether I've attained X or Y or Z, and when I'm finally going to get enlightened and so on. Those are all symptoms of unbalanced effort. And in contrast to that, there are times when we might also experience more of an effortless flow, when the practice almost magically seems to be doing itself. This is an aspect of the mystery that Brian spoke of the other night. And at those times, all we really have to do is keep getting out of the way. So I'll say a little bit more about that later. For now, I want to just come back now to the second great effort. So the first one is to prevent unarisen, unskillful mind states coming up. But the Buddha was a realist, and he knew there would be times when, in spite of our best efforts, we do fall into some kind of afflictive state. So the second effort, a person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind, and strives to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. So letting go of unskillful mind states that may have come up, learning to recognize that they have arisen and then knowing how to help them release. And I spoke quite a bit about that in a couple of Dharma talks a while back. So tonight I want to focus more on the last two of these four efforts. Because at this stage in the retreat, the balance between afflictive and beneficial mind states is shifting more to the beneficial side of the scale. This doesn't mean that afflictive states have completely disappeared, never to return. But if there was some way we could take a kind of snapshot of your psyche on day one when you first arrived and then take another one right now, I'm pretty confident that for every one of you, there'd be a noticeable difference. So the sequence of these four efforts is significant because they describe the overall arc of how our practice unfolds. First we clear out the afflictive states and then almost literally there's more room in the heart-mind for the skillful states to come in. So then the third effort is described like this. A person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind and strives to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. So now we're invited to actively cultivate beneficial mind states. For example, the four Brahmavihara of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And the awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. And for some people, this invitation to orient towards skillful mental states can be surprisingly challenging because it can bring us into direct contact with some deep conditioning, deep beliefs about who we are, how the world is, and what this practice is all about. Perverse, it might seem, most of us have a tendency to pay more attention to what's unpleasant and painful than to what's pleasant and beneficial. So the now well-known discovery in neuroscience that our minds have an inbuilt negativity bias. So as Rick Hansen famously describes it, our minds are like Velcro for what's unpleasant and Teflon for what's pleasant. In other words, we tend to unconsciously cling to difficulties while beneficial experiences barely even register or even slide right off. And when it comes to wholesome mental states, it's precisely because they aren't threatening in any way that it can be easy to overlook them. So we have this basic, almost biological, inbuilt negativity bias. But then on top of that, we also often add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. At least this was true for me early on in my practice. It took me quite a while to realize that in some way I was suspicious of pleasant experiences, seeing them as unreal and lightweight. And conversely, that unpleasant experiences were were reliable, real, true, and how life is. And All of this was deeply unconscious. I didn't really recognize it until pretty early on in my practice when I got to sit a nine-day retreat. Unlike many of those early retreats, the first few days of the retreat were hard. The usual struggle with physical discomfort, mental hindrances, aversion, restless boredom, so on. But on about the fourth day, that suddenly changed and For a while, I sat in a state of real physical ease and mental lightness, even bliss, and I had pretty rarely experienced anything like that kind of pleasantness on retreat before. And of course, because of impermanence, in the very next meditation period that all changed and I was back in states that weren't so pleasant. But I heard myself think, I knew it, back to reality. Do you hear that? I was taking my unpleasant experiences to be real and true and the pleasant ones to be unreal, untrustworthy, unreliable. And that was the first time I saw my own bias towards the unpleasant so clearly. And I started to get curious about these biases. And then I recognized another very fundamental assumption that the spiritual path is supposed to be unpleasant because if I was actually enjoying something, then it couldn't be spiritual. And I'm guessing that this came partly from my Christian upbringing, which I mentioned the other day. I experienced it as a kind of Puritanism that tended to equate any kind of pleasant experience, any kind of enjoyment with sin. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this is how all forms of Christianity, that all of them have that attitude, but that was my personal experience of the way that Christianity was presented to me. So perhaps some of you might recognize a similar bias in your own conditioning. However you were brought up, sometimes there is that bias. So it can be useful to consciously tune in to notice how you're relating to pleasant experiences when they do come up, not to go chasing after them, holding on to them, but when they naturally arise, just notice any reactions, any conditioning that might be revealed and see if we can more and more open to the full spectrum of our experience and not just fixate on the more unpleasant ones. So again, this showed to me a belief that the practice is supposed to be hard work, it's supposed to be uncomfortable, it's supposed to be difficult, it's supposed to be painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or perhaps even pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong. I'm not working hard enough, I'm not going deep enough, I'm not seeing clearly enough. So with that kind of underlying assumption, there's often a lot of resistance, even to the suggestion that joy or enjoyment might be a necessary part of the practice. So again, just an invitation to notice during this talk any views or beliefs that might be coming up for you about what real Dharma practice is supposed to look like or feel like. So if that kind of bias is apparent, then as an antidote, right effort might involve making the conscious effort to acknowledge our own strengths, our own skillful qualities. So in line with this, you might remember the other morning, Carol mentioned the Buddha's instructions to the layman Mahanama. This was the guy who lived in the household that was, quote, dusty and crowded with children. And the Buddha, he went to the Buddha and requested teachings that were relevant for a layman like him. And the Buddha is reported to have told him that he should contemplate six things every day and that if he did this, he would develop the kind of joy that leads to deep concentration, which in turn leads to clear seeing and to insight. So just as a reminder, those six things were to contemplate the good qualities of the Buddha, of the Dharma of the sangha, and of the devas or angels. And then the two that were most interesting to me, he said to Mahanama, contemplate his own generosity and his own virtue, his own good qualities. So you might experiment with this in your own practice. Maybe at the end of every day, just reflect on the skillful effort that you're making here on this retreat. So the other morning, in response to the written questions, I just encourage you not to take for granted, for example, the fact that you're keeping the precepts while on this retreat. And in a similar way, you might let in all of the other skillful qualities that are being strengthened here hour by hour, day by day. And it can be easy to diminish or dismiss our own strengths as insignificant, but the Buddha's teachings are very clear about the value of doing this. So here's just one example from the Dhammapada. It says, Think not lightly of good, saying, It will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise person gathering it little by little, fills themselves with good. So at first this practice of taking in the good might feel forced or artificial. But as we get used to it, we might understand that not taking in the good is in some ways a kind of disowning of the truth or even a dishonoring of the power of the Dhamma. So instead of fearing that we might be making ourselves conceited by focusing on the good, we might realize that simply acknowledging that the Dharma is working within us and through us is very freeing. And we can let go of the effort to try to micromanage this whole process. So at first, this third great effort of noticing the more skillful mental states might seem to take an effort, but with practice, we start to recognize how these states feel in the body, the heart, and the mind. And they feel pleasant, so this can set up a positive feedback loop, and they become resources for us that support and build confidence in the practice and our own capacity to do it. And then this leads quite naturally into the fourth great effort, A person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So the fourth great effort is to maintain these skillful states once they have arisen. And there's a caution here because this is not an invitation to cling to pleasant states because then we're just reinforcing the unskillful energy of craving, of greed. And this can be a particular challenge when we do start to experience these skillful states. So this phrase about bringing them to the full perfection of development, I see that as meaning over the whole lifetime of our practice. So the task is to keep establishing the mind in skillful states, doing what we can to maintain them so that over time they do become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. And even though these skillful states are usually experienced as pleasant, in the beginning this phase of the practice might take a bit of getting used to. So often, early on in the practice, we've got so used to wrestling with the hindrances, with sense, desire, and aversion, and sloth, and torpor, and restlessness, and worry, and skeptical doubt. Yes, the hindrances are unpleasant, but at least we know what to do. We've got something to keep us occupied. So when they start to become less predominant, it can feel like there's nothing happening in our practice or even that we've lost our mindfulness because we don't have these uh, more gross things to pay attention to, and we can't even say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because those more reflective states have fallen away, but our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice their absence, or to notice the more skillful states that can come up in their place. The refined states of the awakening factors, for example. And as we move into this more nuanced and refined terrain, we might start to recognize that we've been unconsciously addicted to the drama of practice, the highs and lows, the roller coaster. We might have been secretly searching for catharsis of some kind, craving intensity looking for some kind of special experience. And we might even notice some fear in relation to these more balanced and subtle experiences. So sometimes when practice does settle into a more stable and quiet phase, we might start trying to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing, forcing, striving. So we need to train ourselves to open to how it feels to have a mind without afflictive states. So this phase of the practice at times can be quite uncomfortable. It can be a phase of transition and sometimes I think of it as almost like being adolescent again. There's that awkwardness of puberty where we or getting used to our newly adult bodies and hearts and minds. Or perhaps more poetically, I think of it as metamorphosis of like a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. So you might know when the butterfly first emerges from the cocoon, it needs to rest and to allow the soft structure of its wings to harden before it can fly. So if we are in one of those phases of transition, we might at times feel a sense of shakiness or unsettledness. And then there's the invitation to really meet that with as much patience and kindness and trust as we can, knowing that whatever we're experiencing is part of a natural unfolding. So I think I mentioned already um, that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's usually translated as meditation apparently literally means getting used to it. So again, I think of the meditation at this point as being getting used to it, getting used to this new terrain, this new and unfamiliar heart-mind that's more and more free of affliction. So coming back to this fourth effort, As the wholesome mental states come up and get stronger, the amount of effort that we need to maintain them becomes less and less. So in some ways, this fourth great effort starts to become the great effort of no effort. And at this stage of the practice, the effort needs to be really refined. As I said earlier, it's more about getting out of the way and not judging ourselves for those times when inevitably we do notice some kind of subtle striving. Because this is how we find balance, by knowing when we're off balance. So sometimes the analogy of riding a bike comes to mind. Even the most experienced rider is still making micro-wobbles in order to stay upright. But with experience, it takes much less effort to do that. And this kind of effortless effort is a fruit of the practice. And at times we might experience it as a kind of a positive chain reaction where some of the awakening factors start to develop and quite naturally lead into each other from one to the next to the next in a kind of effortless upward spiral. So as an image of this, a few years ago I was... um, spending time in New South Wales in Australia. and I may have shared this with you before, but I had an opportunity to spend time camping in a a national park known as the Warren Bungles, and Warren Bungle is an aboriginal name for um, ancient and jagged volcanic peaks, which are a feature of these areas. So my friend and I climbed up to the top of one of these peaks, and because we were so high, We had an amazing view of various wedge-tailed eagles that were soaring on thermal currents just above us. And these birds are huge. They have a wingspan greater than my arm span. And they were so close that I could see all the details of the feathers on their underbellies. And they were just soaring upwards and upwards and upwards. And they almost never even beat their wings. There was just this wide, wide, wide wide-wing soaring, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So keeping that image in mind, I'd like to close with a fairly long passage from the suttas. Dawn shared this in her talk a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating because it's such a powerful description of how the momentum of our practice develops quite naturally when we can set up this chain reaction of skillful mind states. It starts with paying attention to our ethical conduct, our sila or virtue, and it leads all the way upwards to the highest state possible, nibbana, in this quote referred to as the further shore. So it says, for a person endowed with virtue, Consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there's no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. And the quote then continues through a few more stages and ends with this. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation for the sake of going from the nearer to the further shore. May we all cultivate the skillful qualities that lead to the further shore. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.